Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. It's from Psalm 31. It's the last four verses of the psalm for today. So let's get started. So we've got the first lesson is Jeremiah 24, 1 to 10. You can find the link in the description box. Um, so now we've skipped forward a little bit, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has taken for into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the the king, the son of Jehoiakim, who had been the king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, and the metal workers, and he had brought them into Babylon. And so, remember that's the the plot sort of <laughs> setting, maybe for the book of Daniel, is is that Daniel and the others have been taken there, and they've taken sort of the best and the brightest of the young ones there, and they've taken them up there, and they want to turn them into good little Babylonians. And the, so they, they, they're bringing them and they're treating them well, but they want them to be, you know, sort of fully indoctrinated and fully immersed in Babylonian culture, and so they want to change their diet so that they can be like the other Babylonians. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all said, no, I don't think so. Um, what they were trying to do was kind of fatten them up, make them look good. And uh, Daniel said no, and so did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they were trying to, to say, oh, it's a great place. It's a wonderful thing to be here in Babylon so that they would forget about Israel the way that, well, the ten tribes had done when they were driven out of the northern kingdom. And so you've, you've got these exiles that have been taken there, and, and when they're there, uh, Jeremiah is shown a vision. It was a real simple vision, right? So there were two baskets of figs. One of them had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other were just rotten. They couldn't be eaten. And the Lord says, what do you see, Jeremiah? Figs. The good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so that they cannot be eaten. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward vision. There wasn't much to miss see there. So the Lord tells him something, and the message is this. He's going to bless those and watch over those who have gone into the land of the Chaldeans up to Babylon. He's going to bless them, and he will ultimately return them to the land. He's going to build them up and not tear them down, plant them and not pluck them up, and he's going to give a heart to know that I'm the Lord, and they shall be my people, and they shall be my God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. They're going to return to the land, and they're going to return to him. But it's interesting the way he says it. He says, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, particularly the ones whom I've sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. So in other words, what God's saying is, is that this is my doing. This is not only my doing, it's also my desire. I want you to go to the land of the Chaldeans. So allow them to take you there because ultimately you're serving me by going there. He's prepared a place for them, a place where they can ride out this storm of his judgment against them and the spoilation and ruination of the land that they're in. So there are those exiles, and then there are other exiles. And those other exiles, he says, those 
like the bad figs that can't be eaten. So I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in the land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Now, some people said, I'm going to stay here. And then other people said, let's go to Egypt. But God had prepared the place in Babylon. That was his will. And so by going there, they were cooperating with his will. They were doing his work by going to that place. And he said, for those people who don't go there, I'm going to make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I'll send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they are utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. Well, put me on board the bus to Babylon as soon as I hear that word from Jeremiah. And you would think that people would hear that, especially since all the stuff that he had prophesied had come true. I mean, it seems pretty simple. But they they go to Babylon, and so they're there. And not only are they there, the Lord prepared people like Ezekiel, who we believe to be the father of the synagogue movement, actually, who went into exile with the people as well. And we believe that he started... The synagogues there. They couldn't have a temple because they couldn't have sacrifice because it has to be in a particular place. So they can't do that, but they wanted to avoid what happened to the remnant of the northern kingdom, which is they went away. So they wanted to keep the knowledge of God intact. And so they continued to, to do that up there in Babylon. And then when they were ready to come back, when <coughs> Darius was re ready and willing to send them back, they they knew the land they knew the land they knew the word they remained together they remained as a nation within a nation and they flourished there and they were told to flourish up in babylon they were told to settle in for a long ride and they did and so the the judgment is on those who do their own thing not those who accept the will of the lord and trust him that this is actually his will and it, it's hard Right? I mean, because that's countercultural, particularly today. It's countercultural to say we're going to go into a land of suffering, and that will show that God's favor is upon us, that we're in this land of suffering. No, it, the, the feeling would be, no, I'm going to stay right here, and I'm going to um, make it in the land because God told us to stay here. Not in this case he did, and he told you to go up there and be out of the land and mourn for what you've lost. And in that morning, you'll find blessedness because you're going to be right in the heart and the will of God. In the gospel lesson today, it's John 9, the first 17 verses. It's the story of Jesus healing the blind man. And it's interesting, as he goes by the man, the disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? If that is not the sort of the, the, the inherent theology for almost everyone is exactly that. There's something bad here, something not the way it ought to be. Sin must be involved. I mean, I have a friend who struggled for years, decades actually, because his daughter was born with a serious condition. She ended up dying of it, and a group of people went and prayed. And as they came out, he was standing outside because he didn't want any part of it. He was angry with God for all that had gone on. So when he comes out of the, when they came out of the house, they blamed him. Because he didn't have enough faith. It was his sin that kept her there. And it's the same thing you're going to see all through the book of Job. The default theological position for everybody is to figure out why this happened. And there must be some reason. There must be sin somewhere that this, this has happened. And so that's exactly what the disciples ask. Who sinned? 
him or his parents that, that he's blind like this. And Jesus says it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, does that mean it's only displayed in his healing? I don't think so, actually. I, I think that, that the blindness was, was a, an important part of this, too. And this guy had a really noble character. Because, I mean, if I'd been there and I was the guy and I'd heard that conversation, I'd be a little ticked off, right? I mean, it, why, wait, why couldn't these particular works be displayed in somebody else? How did I get chosen? Because he's 40 years old. How did I get chosen to be the guy blind? You know, but no. Jesus says that and says, we, we're going to do the works that I have to do now. It's something, it, basically what he's saying is this whole moment with this man being blind, being right here, right now, and us coming upon this scene was all something set up by God. It seems bad, but it's actually not. It was something so that the works of God could be displayed in this moment. And so then Jesus gets down, and he spits on the ground, and he makes mud with saliva and rubs it on the man's eyes and says, Now go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. We'll get to what's wrong with that whole scene from a Jewish perspective in just a minute. So the, now he comes back, and the neighbors can't figure it out, right? Is this the guy? Isn't this the guy who used to sit and beg? And some people say, Well, yeah, it's him. And then others said, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the guy. It's me. And then, they, so, so how were your eyes opened? He said, I don't know. The man called Jesus came, and he made some mud, put it on my eyes, and told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I did, and I got my sight back. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. I mean, what an odd thing, right? You asked the guy who had been blind, where's Jesus? I don't know. I haven't seen the man. I don't know what he looks like. I don't know anything about him. How would I know? I'm the least likely person to know the answer to that question. And then they brought the Pharisees to him. And they asked him, what happened here? You know, we got the Sabbath cops because it's the Sabbath. So the Sabbath cops and the Pharisees say, hey, what happened here? What's going on? And he says, look, you know, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And then their response, this man is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Another said, wait a minute, how can a guy who's a sinner do things like this? And then they ask him again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Well, here's the thing, and that is is that, that Jesus, you know, remember with the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. Jesus healed him and then told him. He didn't just say, get up and walk. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And it was a Sabbath. So the, it's a challenge to belief for Jesus to tell that man to do that because it's a Sabbath and it's expressly forbidden to carry a load on the Sabbath. And so when he told him to carry his bed, he told him to break the law. So here, same deal. Making mud is work. It's considered work. Washing it off, also considered work. And we think from where he was that the walk that he made to the Pool of Siloam exceeded the to there and back exceeded the total amount of walking you could do on the Sabbath. So Jesus does this as a challenge in my mind, easily so, intentionally, to provoke them. Because they, they, it's a barrier to belief that he has healed this guy in such a way that Sabbath restrictions were broken. That They're still not able to see the miracle because they can't get past what they consider to be a sin. But the law did allow certain kinds of things to be done on the Sabbath. Um, if a horse was stuck in a ditch... 
it certainly would qualify as work to get him out, but you could do that. And so here Jesus is doing these things for these people, and they're not seeing the miracle because they only see what they conceive to be a sin. They've, their hearts are hardened. If you ever wanted to know what it looks like, this is what it looks like. But the other thing I wanted you to see in this is that the people can't figure it out because it's such a radical miracle that this guy's seeing now. He's normal, and, and they can't figure it out. And so they're denying that it's him. And what I want you to see in that is again and again that you'll see that very same kind of thing. People's reaction to this kind of these, these miracles that are too great to believe in is, is they just simply don't. They assume there's some sort of an illusion being played. Jesus has substituted this guy for, for the blind guy. We don't know what happened to him, but it's such a radical thing that he's done. And that's what I want to say about the resurrection. That's why nobody recognizes him. That's why Mary doesn't recognize him in the garden. That's why the disciples on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him. They, they didn't believe for joy. It was too good to be true, so they couldn't imagine it. Same here with these people. They just overlooked the whole miracle because it can't be true. That can't have been done. So then we move over to Romans 9 and kind of wrap up. And, and Paul is, is trying to, to get to the question of this whole thing, who is God to judge, is essentially the question he's asking. That's, that's kind of the, the reaction is, is that, that it's not fair. He's God. It's not fair that he gets to judge and that this is, you know, sin matters that much. And Paul says, wait. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Hasn't the potter any right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And then he does a what if. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? So he says, you know, maybe, and it really is, it's a what if thing. So he's saying maybe God did God created these things prepared for destruction in order to show his power and his wrath, to show that he, he is a just God. But, but maybe he did that in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, to show that mercy is greater than judgment. And he's saying that that's true of, of both sides. And, and what he's talking about here is great reversals with the Gentiles and the Jews. Um, he said, as he indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I'll call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And so what he's talking about is that reversal and the, the mercy that we as Gentiles received in being brought into the covenant. And that's what he's saying to the Gentile population there in Rome. <clears throat> and and then he makes the distinction between how you get there. He says, the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it. That's a righteousness that's by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And it's important that we constantly remember those things and that we mostly were just obedient to him. We're constantly listening to his voice and for his voice. You know, that we might be those who, in every circumstance, are right dead center in the square of his will, which is exactly where we want to be. 
and we should always give thanks because we're in the center of his will no matter what the circumstances look like to us or anybody around us.